Well, hello, all you beautiful homesteaders, land lovers, and future farmer dreamers. Today, we take a deep dive into another farmer's world. I'm interviewing crafter, educator, coach, and shepherd Amika Ryan of Copia Cove in Montana. She breeds and keeps Icelandics, the original Viking sheep. Among other things, we hear about her big, bold, audacious solo start as a single mom with a two-year-old daughter, what it feels like to receive a tremendous education in the school of life in a short amount of time, wisdom from mentors, and the value of reference books. She has a ton of wisdom on best practices for understanding and keeping this rugged, primitive breed. She shares her thoughts on the importance of finding one's life purpose, the value in preserving ancient Nordic fiber arts, explains the ancient art of skin fell, and even describes her leadership and pioneering in the world of felted fleece rugs. She's the gal who says, shepherd like a girl, enjoys the cosplay and LARPing crowd, and coaches other female entrepreneurs on to be successful. She treats her shearer and the hay guy like gold and lives near Yellowstone National Park in Montana. I'm Judith Farrell Horvath, shepherdess and owner at Fairhill Farm in Central Ohio. I started with illegal backyard chickens while at my white collar job. After getting busted, our family made the leap to farm life that was 10 years ago and we're still at it. And yes, is it worth it? Here we talk about the experience of the startup and the steep learning curve that goes with adopting a farm fresh lifestyle. You'll hear stories about what it feels like when you don't even know what you don't know. My mission is to help you sidestep avoidable errors and unnecessary costs or losses as you journey towards your dream of having a farm life. I tell it like it is based on my experience in order to help you learn from my fails and navigate your own personal journey. And now, enjoy the interview. So welcome, Amika. Nice to meet you. I am so excited to have this conversation. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited too. All right. Can you tell the audience a little bit about the name of your farm and your business, how it got its name, and talk a little bit about your your business, where you're located, what you do? Just give everyone a feel for who you are and what you're up to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm Amika Ryan on the Facebooks and the Instagrams. And um, I guess I got into Icelandic sheep, uh, the breed, seven, eight years ago. And it was when my now oldest daughter was still a little baby, right? Like a little, she was barely toddling at the time. And um, at that kind of same time, I got into Icelandic sheep. I was also going through a pretty sticky divorce. That wasn't, wasn't the the most pleasant experience. It was very stressful. And um, my original investment in the sheep came during the divorce and I liquidated my Roth IRA to buy like all the fencing and the buckets and all of that stuff for the sheep. And that was like my only cash, right? So I like invested literally everything I had into this business uh, because I was in rural Montana uh, and it's not where I grew up and I didn't grow up with livestock and I didn't want to send my kid to daycare, right? And the employment options were very limited. So I, I knew I wanted to do something that I could include my young daughter in and sheep for some reason at the time just seemed like a good idea, right? 
Like um, I could have her in the backpack and she'd be relatively safe around small livestock. And uh, it wasn't like an office situation where I'd have to put her in daycare or me working for someone else. So um, the name Copia Cove is what I chose to name my my sheep business. And it, it came because of the time in my life where I was lacking in two major things. And that was um, the feeling of abundance, right? Especially um, financial and the feeling of, of security and feeling safe. So copia from cornucopia is, you know, just this abundant harvest and cove is like a shelter safe. That is lovely. That is absolutely lovely. So um, why did you choose Icelandics? And you were now, okay, I don't ask too much all at once, but what was it that drew you to Icelandic specifically? Um, They're a smaller breed. uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were and still are marketed to the public as a triple purpose breed. Now we can discuss that because it's not something I totally agree with. Um, But at the time it's like, yeah, I want to milk them and learn to make cheese and, you know, their wool is great and their, you know, meat is great and it's mild and gourmet. And um, just like in terms of sheep, uh, they're tough, right? That was probably the deciding factor is, you know, um, in rural Montana, there's a lot of cattle ranchers, like old school, like if you've ever watched, dare I say the Yellowstone movies or, you know, whatever, is it 1980, 1893? I don't know, whatever the one with, um, the prequel. Right. Yeah. That's what we're watching right now. I haven't, I haven't watched. Is it worth it? Okay. Yeah. It's, it's so like that in terms of like the cattle versus the sheep. (laughs) There's a battle there with cattle and sheep, but, um, a lot of the old school cattle ranchers that I talked to, um, they, they have memories of when they were children running sheep with their cattle and they all seemed like they got out of it because the sheep would just go off and die is what they would all keep telling me. The sheep, they would just go find somewhere and die. And Icelandics aren't like that. They're, they're primitive. They're hardy. They're tough. Uh, they're not like a domestic breed, um, which management wise in terms of like health and their hardiness is great, but also handling them can be a challenge. They're hard on dogs. They're hard on people. They're, they just don't, you know, roll over and uh, accept what you want to do with them like a domestic. So. No, they certainly do not. I have um, a couple Iceland. I started with a flock of Icelandics and I got rid of all the ones that I couldn't handle and I ended up with two left. <laughs> so I have two Icelandic ewes left and they're, they're, they're former show sheep. So I can put them on a lead and I can lead them and, and they're great. But um, yeah, I, I have to agree with everything you said. They are tough and uh independent and difficult to handle um they can leap like gazelles too if they need to it's it's yeah impressive very my sheep love leaping into the arms of men so like (laughs) well more than one occasion we're like trying to get the sheep and we're you know doing the hands out like no no don't run past us and there's been a few times now where one will leap into the arms of someone (laughs) just like oh look sheep in arms That's funny. That's funny. So you mentioned that you had your two-year-old and you are in the process of a divorce and you had emptied all your savings. And so there you are new to sheep in Montana with a two-year-old and the sheep probably alone because you're in the process of a divorce. What? Like, 
obviously it worked out because here you are and you're still at it. But what what did that look like? Yeah, it was tough. Um, as you know, with livestock, they don't necessarily produce something sellable right away. Like there has to be breeding and then baking lamb, like in the belly and then Mm -hmm. lambing season. And then you have something maybe to sell in a couple of months, right? Same thing with the wool. They have to grow it. You have to get them sheared, get it processed. We have some great mills in Montana, thankfully, but the turnaround time is many, many months, you know, we're looking at like at least eight months here. And, um, you know, same thing with the meat side of it, you know, they have to grow and (laughs) they have to be big enough to butcher and you have to have a market and the milk as well. They have to be in, uh, in milk, which with Icelandic sheep, it's seasonal. It's not year round. Um, so at that point it was, what the heck can I do to make money? (laughs) Right? Like a sustainable amount of money. And that's when I got into really exploring all of the the crafts that you could possibly do related to sheep. And as I said before, I wasn't ever, um, I didn't have sheep as a kid. I didn't knit. I didn't spin. I didn't grow up with any of that. Um, So it was all brand new to me uh, in, in kind of my early thirties. Wow. Interesting. So what, what drew you to this? I mean, what was the life change that caused you to, well, what did you do in your prior life? Let's start with that. Yeah. So <laughs> I have a, an M- further. <laughs> yeah, so I have an yeah. MBA in hospitality management and marketing that I got from probably the best hospitality school in the world, which is in Switzerland. So I was mm-hmm. kind of conditioned into like this kind of high level executive hotel management sort of position. And at the time, the place to go to uh, be in the hotel biz was Dubai mm-hmm. um, when I got out of school. And I went to Dubai and I started um, in kind of a sales executive position and just like completely burned out. I was so stressed. I was so miserable um, and came back to the United States and really kind of thought about what I wanted my life to look like. And it wasn't working for somebody else. Hmm. Okay. So from there, you decided to, you left hospitality and the schooling in Switzerland and the experience in Dubai and your logical step was sheep in Montana. I mean, there was, there was a step in between. Um, I had what I would say is my, my quarter life crisis. And I um, actually was a personal trainer in San Diego for about six years. So that was kind of like my, um, not my first experience with entrepreneurship, but definitely like my career in entrepreneurship. Like I was the kid when I was like 13, that was like selling stuff on eBay behind my parents back, you know, cause you need like a credit card and stuff to get an eBay account back then. And, um, you know, I was, a a briar horse dealer. I was like a black market briar horse dealer. Like I would buy these lots and then sell them individually on eBay and, you know, would, would go to my ATM to to deposit all my money orders I was getting, you know, And I'd go to Circle K and get a money order to pay my vendors. And um, so I was always entrepreneurial, um, but certainly in like my personal trainer career was, was my first like real adult entrepreneurial venture. All right. So from there you went into, you found your way into ranching in general, or was it just sheep? What was the, what was the, what was the change from um, urban environment and suburbia into rural 
agriculture? Yeah. So my um, husband at the time, now Mm -hmm. ex-husband, had a house in Montana. And at the sticking point of our relationship, it was like he was staying in San Diego and he would prefer that I went to Montana. Okay. Uh, so that's that's how I got to Montana. And um, something prompted me to want to make cheese <laughs> was, was what it was. And I started with like the microwave mozzarella and, um, you know, like, you know, getting on Google and seeing if there's any like creameries, like dairies in Montana. And I had found a sheep creamery um, and started like with baby in the backpack or not working, but volunteering in the creamery, um, to make all these kinds of sheep cheeses, uh, that was short lived because I, um, am allergic to the mold in the cheese cave. So aged cheeses go in a cave and they get mold, like it's cheese mold and I'm allergic. So I would go in the cave to, to brine the cheeses and I'd be sick for like two weeks. So that was very short lived. Oh no. So that's a terrible way to find out that you're learning <laughs> something that you are into. Oh goodness. Oh, what a mess. Okay. So, um, so you ended up in this, and then you ended up going into shepherdessing, right? Uh, were you also doing like a, a homesteading type? Because what you're describing with interest in making cheese is sort of like, um, it's almost like a, like a homesteady entry into farming. Yeah. Well, I guess after that, it was all about the the crafts, like what can we do with sheep, right? Like what's the value add there mm-hmm. outside the milk, outside the meat, outside just like raw wool? Mm-hmm. What's the value add? And I remember um, at that at that time, I was leasing land and I was renting a, a house mm-hmm. and there was a transition to buying my own land for the sheep. Hmm. So current husband, we got married. I was living in his house. My, my business at the time could afford to buy land. And I remember going to, um, F if it's FSA, uh, the farm loan, it's a government farm loan. Oh, it's like a USDA loan, but for farms and, uh, doing like an inch stack of paperwork for this land loan and getting denied because uh, the price of wool, right? The market commercial price of wool is like whatever, a couple cents a pound, like 30 cents a pound or 80 cents a pound, right? And I was doing all my calculations based on the price that I could get for wool, which is more like um, $30 a pound, something oh, like that, yeah, right? Sure. And they wouldn't accept that because it wasn't the commercial rate. So like all of my forecasts, all my my business plans, they were just like, no, it's 80 cents, not $30. Are you crazy, girl? And so I was denied. I was denied my my FSA loan for land. Um, what a bummer. <laughs> what a bummer. You didn't fall into the slot. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. So from from what you've described on your website about all the things you do, it sounds like you literally use every single part of the animal in order to make your living sheep. I mean, you do all kinds of things. Can you talk about the different things you do with sheep and and the utility of these, well, Icelandic sheep specifically? Yeah. So um, the sheep themselves, meaning like 
selling breeding stock, mm-hmm. like the business behind it. Cause this is a, is a business for me. It's not a hobby. It's, it's a profitable sustaining business for my family. And the way it roughly works out with the numbers is like the sale of the breeding stock pays for the hay, right? Like that'll cover the hay, (laughs) but what about everything else? Right. Mm -hmm. So we have some wool to work with. We have some meat to work with. We have some milk to work with. And when I first started out, it was kind of an experiment of how far can I take each of the the wool, the milk, the meat, like, what is that? So I dabbled in meat sales and I was like, decided not, not really for me, not to say that we don't use the meat because I have someone else that sells meat to all the restaurants in Yellowstone national park. So she takes my meat, sells it there. And we actually trade for wool. That's our arrangement. I didn't come to that conclusion right away. Like I went into the meat sales, you know, had my sheet processed, all of that stuff had to have inspections so I could store the meat and resell it and all that decided that that's a whole economy in itself. And I'd rather leave that to someone who has established connections in the restaurant industry to basically liquidate my meat assets in my business, which leaves me to focus on other things. So the other things, milk. So milking the sheep for me uh, because of the, my cheese mold allergy became um, making sheep milk soap. So I would opportunistically milk my ewes, right? So if they were in the barn for some reason getting, um, maybe they lost a lamb and needed monitoring, needed to be milked out. Those are the ones I would milk. And just milking a couple of ewes a year would give me enough milk for um, sheep milk soap for all year. So you also do Nordic crafts, right? With all the other parts of the sheep, you've got some beautiful things. You want, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, the it's Skinfell. So Skinfell is a, an ancient Norwegian folk art and it dates back about 1500 years, um, to Norway. And there's actually artifacts in the United States in the Vesterheim Museum in Decorah, Iowa, that are like 1200, 1500 years old that came over on the ships when um, when people came from Norway to America, to the continent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was lucky about six or seven years ago, um, a woman from Norway who grew up like her mother did skin fell. She did skin fell her whole life. She came to the Vesterheim Museum to teach the skin fell class And it just was like serendipitous timing. Like I had just weaned my youngest daughter. Like she was only like totally weaned for like a week. And I'm like, I'm out of here. I am going, I'm taking this class. It's like my first taste of freedom in (laughs) since I've had her, right? And I went to, to the museum to take this course that was, it was like five days long. And we joined, so we had two ice, I had Icelandic pelts. I had two Icelandic pelts. And you join them together by hand sewing with a linen thread with, you know, sharp metal needles. And there's a particular way to do it. You know, you join it and it's triple stitch. So then there's like a strip of leather that goes over the seam and then you have to stitch down both sides. So it's you, you stitch it three times mm-hmm. and then you add a border to it, which for me was like a sheepskin, like a couple inch furry border around the edge, which again is all hand stitched in there. That's and tough then too. that's really yeah. tough. like 
putting through that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Realize yeah. Leather is really hard. So this five-day class, uh, four of the days was the stitching. And then on the fifth day, we got to do our design work. And so the design work is um, wood carved stamps. And they're all traditional Norwegian Skinfeld designs and ink. Um, And the historic ink that was used was the ink from made from alder bark, which is kind of this orangey brown color. Um, but we're we for this class we were using um like silk screen ink like for shirts. Mm-hmm. And I did my design and that took day five. And uh that was my first skin fell and um and I was hooked. There were there were two crafts that I was hooked on, and one of them was skin fell. Very cool. So the skin fell is it's the it's the leather side of the pelt and with the designs on it and then with the nordic designs on it and then the opposite side is it left raw wool are these hung on the wall are these they're tanned uh skins so it's the long wool i only use the long wool pelts so with like a seven inch staple usually yeah so is that pattern on like a wall hanging so how would someone display that in their home i guess yeah so there's the most traditional Form, like the artifacts that came over from Norway are actually coverlets or bedspreads. Oh. And um, so it, it was, you know, like an important family gift to get a skin fell. And then on the skin fell, on the design part, the design tells a story. And um, sometimes that story was actually covered with a tapestry. So you'd have the skin fell, the sheepskin. And then they would sew a tapestry, they would do the, the design with ink, and then they would put a tapestry over the, over the top. So it was almost like a secret that the there was a story inside. Um, and so that's the most traditional. Nowadays uh, in Norway, you see like baby, they're like little baby kind of blankets, but more like pouches. They're like pouches that you put the baby in. Mm-hmm. When the baby's grown, you like untie it and then it lays out flat like a blanket. Okay. Um, so those are probably the two most common that you see. So did you go ahead and learn how to do your own tanning of your own hides too? I did. Yeah. Um, so like back to um, waiting for the sheep to make enough money <laughs> to uh-huh. live on. Yeah. Um, I was experimenting with um, the different crafts, right? Like I was a complete beginner at spinning on a spindle and um, ta- tapestry weaving and uh, needle felting and making soap and wet felting soap and wet wet felting rugs and tanning sheepskins and I had to try all of it. I tried everything except for knitting for some reason. <laughs> I was like, crochet is enough to know that I don't like this. And um, so that's really what I founded my business on was bringing others along on the journey of discovering crafts you can do with sheep and not just fiber arts, but with sheepskins and with the sheep milk. And like we did, we did it all back then. And so I had a, like a membership, like a, it was called the craft box, like literally the craft box and people joined and we did our, our monthly kind of exploration together. And then we were on to the next thing the next month. Um, really cool. yeah. And so during that process, um, I had sent my first kind of lot of meat lambs to the processor and you know, I, I'm like, I need the pelts. I need the money. <laughs> so uh-huh. make sure you keep the pelts for me. And they did. And I went to go pick up the pelts and there were these like 
two feet long gouges in the pelts, like the the butcher marks, right? They didn't peel them. They sliced them and they were worthless at that point. And I'm like, there's no way I could send these to a tannery, right? That's what everyone does. They send them to a tannery. That's what I saw. That's what I knew. And I knew that if I sent these to a tannery, they would be worthless and I would just be out of pocket hundreds of dollars. So I was like, I can't afford these to be worthless right now. So we need to do something with them. And so I learned to tan and I patched them learning with my skin fell technique, the way I learned to sew sheepskins. I patched all these holes and I made them into pillows because you don't see the Frankenstein side of leather right on the pillows you just see the nice outside with the wool so that was like the first like real product I think I had from my sheep to sell wow that's very resourceful a lot of people would have just said oh that's that's that well would have been sad but a lot of people would have said oh it's ruined I guess I better that's good you didn't give up that's really cool Yeah. yeah so you did you learn you mentioned specifically peeling so it sounds like you've also gone in and you have learned about the actual um skinning process too so how deep did you go yeah we um let's see so some sheep (laughs) aren't fit for uh gourmet lamb resale right Mm -hmm. so like cull ewes or Mm -hmm. rams in rut Mm -hmm. um or sheep that have mysteriously died that aren't edible, but their pelt is still salvageable, right? So um, it's just part of having sheep that you get to butcher some or many yourself, depending on the circumstances. So every year we do have, you know, some call use that we do. Um, Every year we have some butcher lambs that we do just for our own consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I would say every couple of years we have just some mysterious sheep deaths and um, that the pelt is still salvageable off of. So um, my now husband, who's wonderful, he dispatches, as we say, <laughs> the the sheep in question if it needs it. And um, I do the rest. So you actually... You do the actual um, breaking down the carcass and butchering it and cutting it up and sectioning it and all the butchering cuts. Yeah. Um, wow. I do. Yeah. I um, was fortunate. The, the way I learned that was when I was a single mom, one of my, probably my only friend in Montana, she, at the time, her her boys were like in they're like teenagers, like 18, 19 years old and hunted their whole life. Mm-hmm. And I'd never been exposed to that growing up. So they did, they just, they knew how to, you know, do that. Right. And so they would come over and we would process, you know, a couple of sheep together and in exchange, I would take them to the high school gym and I would train them. Like I would, I'd work them out, you know, I, I would be their personal trainer. So we had a barter system for me to learn how to butcher sheep. Um, it's, it's not a typical thing for women to be in the butchering arts, I suppose. I don't, I don't, it's, it's, um, it's not a usual thing. I guess it's typically something that is more male dominated, I would say as an industry. Have you found any sort of pushback from your friends or your family when you are doing videos of butchering an animal? Do you have your family recoiling and in horror and, and surprise? 
Um, I think my family's pretty proud of me that I do that. Uh, they're not rattled by much, especially with all my adventures overseas and things. This is probably pretty tame for them. Um, but social media, for sure, uh, there's backlash to, you know, sustainable agriculture and and killing an animal, right? Um, I actually have a video on my Instagram, I think it's on Facebook too, of me actually butchering out a ram lamb mm-hmm. um, that we weren't going to use this year for breeding actually. So he was, he was called before breeding season mm-hmm. and I cherish the pelts. Like I, there's no holes, there's no nicks when I go to skin them. Like I skin for the pelts first because like lamb pelts are like the most beautiful, gorgeous I think piece of an Icelandic sheep in my opinion. And, um, I filmed it, I filmed skinning him out and, uh, just the skinning process and posted it. And it was, there was a lot of support, right. Of people who get it, like more people need to see this and where their food comes from and that you don't waste any of the sheep and, you know, that you're honoring its life and equally like this shouldn't be on social media and, you know, all of that sort of thing that you can imagine as well. So how do you feel about that? I mean, what, I mean, obviously you, you, you probably anticipated there was going to be some backlash, but I mean, you carried on, did you take it down? I mean, what, what, no, it's still there. Good. good. Hey, and you know, Uh, Facebook didn't take it down. Yeah. Instagram didn't take it down. So like, let's applaud that as well. In today's today's world of social media, you never know what you're going to be delisted for. So yeah. yeah, And on, on Facebook, Mm -hmm. um, I know that there were, there was, because when when you post something controversial on social media, mm-hmm. there's a lot of engagement, a lot of comments and a lot of stuff. So the algorithm says, we should show this to more people, right? So they show it to more people. So on Facebook in particular, um, there was actually a lot of comments about like men commenting on it, saying things like, I need to set up like that to butcher my deer or whatever, you know, like they, they were admiring my setup, right. And my mm-hmm. skills at cleanly skinning this animal. Right. So that was kind of interesting. Well, I mean, these are, these are skills that I think have been lost through generations. You know, we used to, historically speaking, food didn't always come from the grocery store. You know, you had your, I call them forest cows, right? A lot of other people call them deer, right? We've got our forest cows up here. So, I mean, every year my family eats venison and the person who taught us how to process and break down and got the first deer on our land was my daughter. Wasn't me, wasn't my husband, wasn't my son. It was my daughter. Wow. She proceeded to show her boyfriend years later how to do it and show the two other cattle ranch hands how to do it also. So, I mean, you're not alone. And the guys were very impressed and they found that attractive in her for whatever reason it was a turn on, I think. But um, I mean, there's something to it. There's there's something to that sort of um, display of that primal skill that is 
attractive to people today. And I don't mean attractive in like a personal attraction way, but I mean attractive as an interesting and people find it fascinating and you know, they really kind of dial in and they look at it, even like, hey, nice setup and things like that. And then they also go to these videos to learn because again, there's no generational knowledge to to draw upon. You don't, it's it's very interesting to them and they're drawn to it. At the same time, you have other people in today's removed from these skills society who find it abhorrent and repugnant and barbaric and whatever. I mean. In my opinion, I think it's important that people know where their food comes from. If, if you're going to eat meat, um, I think it behooves you to understand what that process looks like. Right? So. Yeah. And even knowing the difference between like what a commercial process looks like versus, you know, an animal that's been cherished and cared for and, yes. you know, uh, yes. said goodbye to really you know, and, and that's what the butchering process is for me is just getting in there and spending that time Mm -hmm. and just really appreciating everything that that sheep is, is handing over to me. Right. And, uh, it's, it's kind of cathartic, right. It's, it's meditative, uh, skinning them and butchering them and not, not gross. Uh, Someone commented when I was doing the pelt, the video that I posted, like they're not, they're not just covered in blood right? Like they were being educated that, I mean, it's not like a bloody gross process. It's like very little, if any blood when you skin them. And, um, you know, they were very surprised that it wasn't the gore that's portrayed on movies or, you know, in culture, like modern culture. Agreed. Agreed. So how did you feel the first time you saw a sheep dispatched in front of you and being skinned and broken down. I mean, having, like you said, you, you know, by, by your own admission, you didn't grow up with that. I mean, what, what did you, what did you think of that? What were you, do you remember your impressions at the time? Um, it was more just a task. It was a task that needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't ever very shocked by it. I think it's because it's not like I don't know. It's not like they're being killed and then thrown in the trash, right? Mm. There's time to process it, especially if, if like back then when I was new to it, like spent hours, hours processing out these sheep, right? It wasn't, it wasn't traumatic. It wasn't, um, yeah, it was just like, there's, it's, you're bringing something to completion um, in, a, I think, a very honorable way. And so I never had any real negative associations with it. Um, Definitely some sheep are harder to let go of than others, especially like now I have two daughters and they have their favorites. (laughs) And so that can be hard. Um, But, you know, those ones we make sure we do ourselves, you know? Yeah. And, And my daughters see it too. We don't, we don't hide that from them. So how old were they when they first saw their first sheep being processed? as early as they can remember. So do you feel like you're giving your children um, a different kind of education than they would have had other, if they had lived in a suburban life or an urban life? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Montana life in general, it's very common for um, men and women to hunt boys and girls to hunt. So I think just being in Montana, they would be exposed to something like that anyway. 
Um, but certainly compared to, you know, a suburban or, or a city life, uh, it is very, very different. Um, you know, you see all those memes on social media about, like, you ask a, I don't know, a fourth grader where their eggs came from, like, and they don't know, right? Or, yeah, yeah. So your reasons for starting on this whole journey back then versus your reasons for continuing now, how do they compare to each other? Um, it's definitely the same in terms of just enabling my daughters to be with me all the time. There's very few things that I do with the sheep that they can't be around. Um, the exception would be like in with the rams. They know they're not allowed in in an enclosure with the rams in there. It's just not safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, aside from that, like they get to just hang out, run around like shearing day. The shearer comes and, and they're just like outside run around all day and helping gather up the wool and sweeping, you know, making sure the, the shearing floor is clean. And um, yeah, I mean, they're just helping every step of the way. It's fantastic. Do you feel like they're going to go into sheep ranching? I have no idea. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Would you be sad if they didn't? No, I I think everyone should do what, what, brings them joy and fulfills their purpose. Like what is, what is their purpose for being? Mm -hmm. And that's different for everybody. And I'm not going to tell anybody what, what their purpose is. So same with my girls. Do you feel like this was your purpose? Um, It's a vehicle for my purpose. Um, As I, as I believe that pretty much all careers or professions are. It's a vehicle to fulfill your purpose. So it's a platform for sharing my purpose or the values that I think are important or the messages I think uh, I'm here to share with others. And for me, it's there's always been a very heavy educational aspect to everything, whether I worked for someone else or I was doing my own thing. Um, teaching comes very naturally to me. And also empowering women. That's been a very uh, common theme in my life. And um, I think also I have two daughters. (laughs) Can we touch on the teaching thing for a second? Um, You you mentioned that you were exploring and teaching and were were your students, mainly women, that were drawn to you also? Yeah, I would say all women. Interesting. Interesting. And were they, um, it was, was it, was it pastime curiosity or were they interested in getting into a lifestyle like this? Um, there's always been a mix. There's always been other sheep owners that are interested in making their sheep more profitable. I think that's a big sticking point with like small flocks or even medium sized flocks is, um, if they're not, pets, if they're not there as a hobby, then they need to be profitable, right? So at some point, some people make that decision, either they go into it thinking they want it to be a business, or they decide at some point they want to have more sheep and want it to be profitable. Um, That's something that people come to me for, I think, because they've seen all of the diversity I have in my my sheet business and my product line, and that I'm open and, and willing to teach people. And then there's people that are just interested in the craft side. And then there's people that are just interested in more the cultural side, you know, because I I've niched over the past 
couple of years into Viking era crafts, Mm -hmm. particularly around sheep. So, you know, null binding, tablet weaving, skin fell, um, things like that in a very Viking kind of niche. Uh, and that's, that's, what makes my decisions for me in my prod the product side of my business? Like, is it in this niche? So, are you of Nordic background from your family's ethnicity? Uh, people, it's probably one of the most common questions I get asked, yeah. and um, the answer is probably right. Like, I think <laughs> probably most all Europeans have some Viking blood in them, right? If we go back far enough. Uh, but the the truth about my background is that I am like as American as they get. I'm Irish, Scottish, American, Indian, English, Saxon, like all, all the stuff, right? I'm just a Caucasian mess. That's that's very it's funny the way you describe that. So in the past couple of years, there's been this is sort of leaping to mind here. So in the past couple of years, there's been uh Last Kingdom and Vikings and all kinds of Netflix um shows on Vikings. Have you seen an uptick on interest in Viking crafts and Viking like hair beads and Viking things? I mean, there's all kinds of Viking stuff that now is out there that I never saw before these, uh, before these series were on TV? Um, I mean, I, when I do my in-person events, which Mm -hmm. is just a a few a year, Mm -hmm. I stick in usually like the Renaissance uh, vein of like Mm -hmm. Renaissance fairs and festivals, Mm -hmm. because it does attract that era, that Viking era Mm -hmm. uh, crowd. And, you know, people that are interested in like historical like LARPing is is the term for it and cosplay. Like it's, it's also usually very cosplay friendly, which is you're getting into like, you know, the witcher, like costumey yeah. things like that. And now this year it's going to be all about Willow. I'm just making that prediction there. Um, <laughs> we'll mark it on our calendars and check back in a year and see if you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be all about Eleonora. Ele- yeah. Dan, 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 Dan something. <laughs> Um, so I don't know if I've seen an uptick because I niched into Viking, um, heavily last year. So I don't have anything to compare it to necessarily, um, business wise, like the business conversation and evolution of my business. At first I was Icelandic sheep, right? Icelandic Mm -hmm. sheepskins, Icelandic wool, Icelandic sheep. Um, and to be very frank in a business marketing strategic conversation, Mm -hmm. nobody cares. Like the consumer doesn't care that I'm only doing Icelandic, right? Like people who are interested in Icelandic wool, like the consumer who wants, they want the Icelandic yarn or the Icelandic roving. They also probably like Shetland roving and they also probably like Jacob roving. So it's pretty irrelevant in terms of like a competitive advantage niching into just Icelandic sheep. So, um, after coming to terms with that, with my marketing brain, I was like, well, what's, what's next? Like what actually is going to magnetize a loyal raving fan audience to me? And for me, it was just like a little pebbles throw into the Viking era because Icelandic sheep 
were brought to Iceland by the Vikings. They are the original Viking sheep. So instead of marketing my brand outside of like Icelandic breeding stock as Icelandic sheep, I market it as I'm a Viking shepherd of Viking sheep in Montana. And that clicks with people instantly. Like they instantly are like, Vikings suck or they're not. Right. And you don't get that reaction with Icelandic sheep. Interesting. So you leaped right to there without educating them. You just said Viking shepherd. Okay. That's new. And you know, people that are into Viking stuff Mm -hmm. don't necessarily care that they're Icelandic sheep, right? Like, some people do. They want that conversation. But a majority of people are like, just make me look like Jon Snow and we're good, right? <laughs> That's funny. But it's historically accurate. I mean, it's not deceptive in any way. I mean, it's it's exactly true and correct. That's and I dress in traditional Viking dress when I go to my events. What does so that I, I'm like? like literally a Viking shepherd. So what does that look like? Are you wearing like shearling stuff if it's wintertime? I mean, what what is what does a Viking it's, shepherd look like? Um, a dress, which you won't catch me in a dress any other time oh, ever. Not on the sheep pen, no way. <laughs> right. No way. I hear you. I've got sheep yeah. too. Yeah, no. Full length linen dress with okay. an apron dress over top. Okay. Um, big old brooches to to hold the straps on. Um, I'm a wealthy Viking woman, so I have you know beads mm-hmm. and uh, bracelets and all that all that opulent feminine uh, you know power stuff, which was a thing in the Viking Age. Like women were not subservient in the culture. Mm-hmm. So what? I- do you do you feel like um, there's a lot more interest in Icelandic sheep in the United States now than there were when you started? Um, not necessarily. It yeah. kind of kind of seems the same to me. I think there was a big uptick maybe like around COVID with people, my theory anyways, people wanting to be more self-sustainable mm-hmm. and investing in small livestock and chickens and gardens um, to have some sense of security in a really uncertain time. So I did see a lot of kind of new shepherds in that time frame, mm-hmm. which wasn't necessarily the case last year. Interesting. Interesting. Cause I've started to see a lot of interest um just in this past year, but for hair sheep, I, I breed Katahdins. So um, here in central Ohio, we get 39 inches of rain a year. So parasites, barber pole worm especially, is particularly brutal um, for Icelandic sheep in my area. And the Katahdins are much more um, parasite resistant. Um, so I keep both. But um, I have definitely seen an uptick in people wanting their own little farmsteads, their own little homesteads. They want help getting started, really. They're looking for training mill sheep. They're looking for starter sheep. They're looking to get into this for exactly those reasons that you just stated. I mean, that's why I started this whole podcast, uh, because people are 
hungry for this stuff. They don't know about it. They're getting started and they don't, there aren't enough mentors to go around because I mean, let's face it, this is not in conventional farming. It isn't like you have people with a lifetime of knowledge who are busy mentoring other new people getting in. It's they're busy farming. They're doing their own thing in a conventional fashion. And I'm painting farmers with a very broad brush. So certainly the interest in rotational grazing and you know, pesticide-free hay and things like that. It's it's not um it's not something that has been seen on a large scale, uh, at least around where I live in central Ohio. It's interesting. Yeah, and you know, there is some peace of mind that comes with just looking out the window and seeing food, right? Like yes, yes. If the worst happens, which I'm sure everyone at some point has thought about during COVID, um, mm-hmm. I have food, right? I have something actually super valuable growing right outside my my window. You sure do. You sure do. Um, so what do you think were your biggest um, errors and learning mistakes? What, what, are, what did you, where did you, what did you do? And, and then what did you learn from it and have to pivot or backtrack? just for people who are interested in getting into sheep and Icelandic sheep in particular, maybe. Yeah, there were so many lessons. I think um, there's three things that'll grow you as a person uh, faster than anything else. One is entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two is having kids and three is probably having some livestock. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I started out with like 270 sheep, single on my own, no mentor. Wait, that was your start? 270 head? Mm-hmm. And I learned everything fast with that number of sheep. You know, I have, you know, people that I've sold sheep to that maintains much smaller flocks, like five, eight, 10 sheep. Mm-hmm. And it would take them a lifetime probably to learn what I did in that my first year with that many sheep, because uh, the sheep that I had sort of gotten were mineral deficient. So I had all sorts of retained placenta issues. Um, yeah. (laughs) So I learned that really quick. Uh, I had some, you know, almost every year I have some new thing that happens like medically with a sheep that I'm like, never seen that before. Right. Uh, which is kind of to be expected. And then you know, the financial reality of small livestock is you don't call the vet out every time someone coughs, you know, you kind of have to figure it out. And that's where um, Facebook groups actually at the time really came in handy. So I had two big resources. One was um, the Icelandic sheep owners group on Facebook. And then the second was the Laura Lawson lambing problems book although I got both her books lambing problems was like my daily reference (laughs) I was like what's going on and I'd flip through I'd get syringe and all these vitamins and start like injecting sheep with vitamins and minerals and you know drenching them and um all of that stuff um yeah I mean it in terms of like biggest mistakes I I don't know that there's necessarily mistakes. There's just uh, opportunities to learn. So I guess the biggest mistake would be 
if you were presented with an opportunity that you didn't learn from, that's a mistake. You know, Mm. uh, if something happens with the sheep and you didn't learn, learn from it, then, then that's the mistake right there. I like that. I like that a lot. That's a really positive mindset. Um, what about sunk costs and wasted money? Like how could someone avoid spending more money than they need to? (laughs) Okay. So my number one tip is be really good to your hay guy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I I've had the same hay guy since the beginning. So seven, eight years. And, uh, he has never raised my hay prices, even with all the drought and all the stuff, uh, happening. Um, so yeah, be good to your hay guy and be good to your shearer. If you don't shear your own sheep, uh, (laughs) give your shearer lunch and a tip and, uh, some presents from your sheep. (laughs) Yeah. 270 head. You got a good Lord. I bet he's out there for a couple days. Yeah. That year it took him two days to the whole flock. Uh, but now, now I run about 50 head, Mm -hmm. uh, which is much more enjoyable, much more manageable. Uh, yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, all right. So you have a thing, which is like a, a felted fleece rug and it, it almost like an ethical, it's like a way of getting a rug made out of fleece off a sheep. And then the sheep goes and makes you another one the next year. Mm-hmm. So you have to give up his skin to make you a rug. Could you, or her, could you, could you talk about that a little bit and explain what it is? Yeah. So when, when I was kind of in my, my first year exploring all the crafts, of course, wet felting is a great craft to do with any, any kind of wool that felts, which is not hair sheep and not down breeds, (laughs) if anyone's (laughs) curious. And Icelandic, uh, it really has a magical way of felting. Like if you take the whole fleece that has been shorn or sheared off the sheep, um, when, not the lambs, but when they're, you know, a year or two years, they, they tend to come off more intact, mean, meaning like you can kind of almost throw them out and they stay kind of together. Um, Icelandic wool has a uh, tog, which is kind of the longer uh, outer coat. And then they have fell, which is kind of the downy soft coat, both true wool coats. And the soft downy fell felt really nicely. And what this creates in a felted fleece rug is um, maintaining the lock structure of the tog while the fell felts it into kind of a fabric. And that I mentioned earlier that I have two sheep craft loves. One is skin fell and the other is felted fleece rugs. And felting a whole fleece is a lot of work. I think that's why I like it. It's like a whole body experience, uh, Mm -hmm. getting it to felt. And like, if you're doing it outside in Montana, it's only on like the most beautiful warm day that you're doing this because it takes water (laughs) and, and water gets everywhere. Um, so I created, um, kind of a, a tutorial and course around like how to felt, a felted fleece rug. Now, felted fleece rug, the term uh, was kind of like the OG, the original, right, uh, term for this. But as it's gained in popularity, the term has changed, which really fascinates me. So it went from 
felted fleece rug, which is what it is. It's a felted fleece to vegetarian sheepskin, which that one just boggles my mind. So that was kind of the second iteration of what you call it, a vegetarian, like it looks like a sheepskin. It does until you turn it over and then you realize it's, there's no skin, right? There's it's no all, right. it's all wool, right? Yeah, so, so vegetarian good. sheepskin. Vegetarian. And then, you know, now like all the PC more related terms, right? Like mm-hmm. eco-friendly sheepskin and, you know, cruelty-free sheepskin and all these things mm-hmm. like implying that a sheepskin is cruel, like a real one with the leather on it, you know, and the oh. cruelest thing would be to throw it in the dumpster, you know? So I prefer felted fleece rug. It's the the least offensive to me and probably many other shepherds. So when did you get the idea to do these um, felted fleece rugs? So um, when I was exploring my different crafts, and kind of deciding what I like to do, mm-hmm. uh, there wasn't any information out there. There was like maybe a little little blog post here or a little social media post there, but there wasn't like anywhere you could go to to tell you the process. There weren't any videos on YouTube. There wasn't like a comprehensive tutorial anywhere. And I'm like, dang it. I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to tell everybody. So it was <laughs> one of the first blog posts that I wrote. And, um, you know, it's probably six, seven years old now. And to this day, it's still very popular um, and it's detailed. It's free. It's it's on my website. Wow, that is cool. So are you the inventor of this method? No, um, I think felting wool is as old as sheep. Um no, the, I mean the, the, the felted fleece rug. I have a particular method that's unique to me, um, but the original, I wouldn't be able to tell you who, you know, felted the first fleece. Mm-hmm. Some of them just come off that way, to be honest, especially with Icelandics, because they, they rue, right? So if they don't, if they don't get sheared, it's very obvious where their rue is, the, the wool break. And if you were to shear them, so their their wool break, let's say it grows out two inches and you have them sheared, you'd have a felted fleece rug without having really to do anything at all, right? Because it's it's a, a wool break, it's a rue. Um, time out for a second and yeah. tell what ruing is and, and what that actually means. Like yeah, ruing it is a wool break. So Icelandic sheep, um because they're primitive, right? Let's call them the original sheep, okay. Mm-hmm. there wasn't anyone to shear them. So how would they survive? They would just become a big old puff ball of wool and probably suffocate themselves under the, their own weight of their wool eventually. So primitive sheep shed their wool annually in the spring. Um, my rams kind of start ruining in March. My ewes kind of wait another month or two. And it's just the natural way of them kind of shedding their entire wool coat so that the new one can grow in. And the Viking era, um, they didn't shear their sheep. They rude their sheep. They actively, so the sheep would have their wool break and they would pull the wool from the sheep and rue them. So I find with my Icelandic sheep that some of them genetically rue cleanly if I were to let them they would rue completely and some of them genetically have a harder time with that so 
if we're looking at like the evolution of the Icelandic sheep, like as its own species, the only ones that would have lived are the ones that would have rude cleanly. Wow. That's really, really interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, well, a lot of people like the, um, the hair sheep because they shed and people say, Oh, what's with hair sheep. And I said, they shed. They're like, what do you mean? They shed. I said like a Buffalo that just comes off them in chunks. Like, like everyone can think of a Buffalo and what it looks like in pictures, like Yellowstone park with the big Mm. chunks hanging off of them. And I've explained that to people and they're kind of surprised by that, but I don't, I don't see Icelandic sheep being allowed to just shed, even though they would, is that so that you can gather the, the wool all in one go so you don't have to worry about puffballs all over your pasture yeah so part of it is that because of the domestication and because of our interference not all of them rue well i would say most icelandic sheep don't completely rue on their own mm-hmm. um but also that wool is valuable right like as a business we want that wool to be processed or uh you know made into something so uh, it would take a lot of man hours to follow the sheep around and, and, and gather up their wool and or rue them by hand. It's much faster uh, to have a shear come out. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So can you talk a little bit about your uh, signature Shepherd Like a Girl series? That's such a neat um, title. Yeah. So um, Copia Cove had a tagline and the tagline was Shepherd Like a Girl. and it was kind of just my way of telling women to just do it your way. That's all it, all it means is I want you to do it your way. And there's not like a right, wrong way to, to really do anything. Right. So it was, it was just like kind of along my purpose of women empowerment and, and self-sustainability and, um, yeah, that's where Shepherd Like a Girl, the tagline came from. And today it's evolved actually into a whole separate business where, I mentor handmade sellers of all kinds. Um, I have a lot of fiber artists in my world, but I also have um, women who have bees and make products from honey and herbalists that make, you know, teas and tinctures and uh, people who make home decor and like the whole gamut. I serve women who hand make products and want to have sustainable businesses on and offline. That's fantastic. So you've, you've, did you plan to do that or did it just sort of happen from an upswell that you identified a need? It just sort of happened. Uh, I was very focused, you know, certainly on the sheep and my, my young daughter when I first started out and I wouldn't have predicted or said like, this is the direction I want to go. I want to be a coach to thousands of women online. Like it wasn't uh, something that was planned, but it was definitely a naturally, uh, a natural evolution of, of my purpose and of the vehicle that I use uh, to, to reach more women with the message that I have for them. Hmm. So in this journey, what was, what's, what did you find is the hardest part about being a yeah, uh, lambing season <laughs> is the hardest part. Um, it's, it's the the physical, like physically and mentally, being present while also having young children. That was definitely the hardest part. Like, whose priority comes first, right? So let's talk about lambing season when it's sometimes a life or death situation. 
is the life of a sheep more important than the comfort of my child? Is it nap time? Is it time for food? Is it break time? Do they need my attention? And making those decisions on a moment to moment basis in a a high stress time, which is if you're having, let's say a hundred use lamb, right. Uh, that's pretty stressful and having to make those decisions. And when I first started, my sheep didn't live on my property. I actually had a 15 minute drive to the pasture where my sheep lived and lambing season and two-year-old, you know, and, uh, I would just, sometimes it was 10 30 at night. And I would say, ladies, meaning my use, mm-hmm. you got to hold out if you need help until I get back in the morning, because I got to get this one home, right? The, my, my girl. So that was definitely the hardest thing to juggle. Wow. What was the easiest part for you to learn? <laughs> I don't know about the easiest part, but I think kind of the most natural part that I learned was the actual lambing, like lambing out my use. Um, I think just being a mother, you kind of have an intuitive sense of when it's time to help and the use kind of do too, you know, like if you know, your use, you know, you know, when they're asking for a little bit of assistance, (laughs) you know, when to just leave them the heck alone. And one of the, I guess, one of the biggest mistakes that I, I see new shepherds making is the interference in the lambing process, um, with with the use, like 90% of the time, keep your distance, let them do their thing, like monitor them, but don't hover like a hungry wolf over the poor you trying to have her lamb, right? It, you know, doesn't make any, any biological or evolutionary sense. And, and people don't understand that. Like they are a tough, primitive breed, like lambing out a deer, right? Would you hover over a wild deer while they're trying to have their fawn? No. So don't do that to your poor sheep. It just, it really does mess them up. That's, that's good advice. That's really good advice. So what about misconceptions that people typically have about what you're out there doing and, and, and what that life must be like? Again, like in Montana, I think because it's so rural and people are raised like hunting, like my husband is an expert elk and deer hunter. Mm -hmm. And he just grew up with that, which is again, like not something that I grew up with at all, but he like just kind of normal to him, right. Uh, That, you know, we dispatch and we skin the sheep. Um, And my neighbors, I think they feel kind of the same way. Uh, They, they can hear when we dispatch sheep. Um, you know, and they, they're not concerned. They don't come over. They don't call the cops, you know, like I heard gunshots. Yeah, exactly. It's a dress. Yeah. It's pretty normal out here. I think, um, like I think most of our neighbors hunt, all of them have guns and know how to handle that. And, uh, it certainly wouldn't be as acceptable in a lot of other places. Well, so what about predators? Speaking of guns, I mean, how do you handle, I mean, I visited Montana once and it was amazing to realize that I was not at the top of the food chain. Let me just put it that way. So your sheep are definitely further down the rank when it comes to the food chain in Montana. How do you handle predators? Yeah. So my first, um, before I got my big flock of sheep, I was kind of 
testing out. I had like a couple of really old ewes that were not breedable and just kind of hanging out. And um, a mountain lion came and drug one off. Like I hadn't had sheep for like a month and this mountain lion comes and and takes takes the sheep through the electric netting. Okay, so electrified fencing. And that was when I decided I wanted to get LGDs, so livestock guardian dogs. And that's a whole nother conversation on like the mentality of a livestock guardian dog and like their purpose and their breeding and like why they're not trainable and why they're so stupid and all of that stuff. Uh, so I got two, I got two LGDs and they're Kangle. The breed is Kangle mixed with Perinian Mastiff. Do not get an LGD unless you know what you're doing, right? Uh, again, a whole, whole nother conversation. Um, but I got them as puppies and that's like the, that's, that's the picture that I use as my, my origin story, right? So I have this picture of little Madison and she's probably like a year. Yeah. She might've just been a year old and having the, the two like old old ewes and then the two puppies on either side of the stroller that my kid is in. And, uh, um, so I got the dogs because they're one of the only guardian animals that'll deal with cats, big cats. Uh, so when I brought my sheep to the pasture that I leased, when I got my big flock, the dogs were in with the sheep and the area that my pasture was in was, a. Um, it was funded. It was like a funded preserve type area. And as the dogs got older, because their job is to bark, they are supposed to bark. That's their number one primary defense is barking. Like, yes, they'll also proactively attack predators, but their number one job is to bark. And so they're, they're barking and the, the, the associate, the foundation that owned the land that I was leasing was concerned because there's all these second homeowners funding this association, this preserve area, that they didn't want the dogs bothering the second homeowners when they were there. Oh my so God. they nicely said, you cannot have your dogs with the sheep. So um, I kept one dog and I rehomed the other dog. And this dog is now like the most spoiled house dog in the whole world. So she's retired. <laughs> she, <laughs> she's in her uh, senior years now because they the, the big dogs don't live very long. Mm-hmm. Um, and she went from complete feral guardian dog to like the dog that my kids rode around the house, like the babysitter dog, like the Nana dog in the Peter Pan movie, like that's her. So I feel very fortunate of the disposition of of livestock guardian dogs that she was able to make that transition, but other predators, my first year. So the property we live on now, the sheep live with us, which is like such like a, um, it's like a dream because I started out with them, not on the property and having to deal with that stress. Now it's like, I look out the window and I'm like, everything's fine. I didn't have that for years with my sheep. So they, they have electric netting. And I have no permanent fencing. So I have some permanent uh, shelter for them, but all of my fencing is netting. So it's post and net that's electrified with solar. So like T-posts in the ground? No, um, 
fiberglass poles. Okay. And each length of netting is like 160 feet with 13 poles. Oh. And during my grazing season, I move, uh, let's say two acres of fence at a time every two weeks. Okay. <laughs> so okay. I get my exercise. Oh, yes. You um, do. My goodness. So predators now where we are, we don't have cats. Uh, we're, we're out of the tree line. We're on like Montana sage, sage like land. The tree line is there. Uh, so we do get coyotes. We get wolves that come down. Um, and I know the coyotes have tested the fence and they haven't been back. They'd rather chase calves, the neighbor ranch calves, and they'd rather get into people's chickens. And then the wolves also uh, have not bothered the sheep. They'd rather go for the chickens and the neighbor dogs. Interesting. And it's just because you keep your fences hot or yeah, they're, they're hot? really hot. Yeah. The, the LGD does nothing. <laughs> She, she comes and does my sheep chores with me, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of predator control, no, not so much. Uh, but it's, it's the electric netting, um, which obviously wouldn't work if we had big cats because they, they just jump over it and then drag sheep out. Yeah, it's hard to fight them. My goodness. Yeah. So you have, you said your, your, your paddocks are two acres at a pump. Um, we have 50 acres of un irrigated sage land. Okay. And I move my fencing in mm-hmm. two acre chunks every two weeks, or sometimes okay. every week if it's really dry. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it kind of brings me around to like the parasite conversation Yeah, I was gonna ask that, next, yeah. that I tell my, the people who buy breeding stock from me, mm-hmm. there are what from what I've heard, genetic lines of Icelandic sheep that are parasite more parasite resistant than others. Like you have mm-hmm. to get like the right genetics for your area. Mm-hmm. Um, for my sheep, you wouldn't know if they were naturally parasite resistant or not because I maybe deworm five ewes every year, and that's it. I mean, that's same that's time. It. Or- no different, you know, just, and it might not even be parasite loads. They might have anemia for some other reason, but hmm. I, because I rotational graze, they're only on one piece of our land once a year period. Okay. So there's no, there's no parasite introduction. It sounds like because of your climate and the way that you manage them, you have gotten around an issue that I mean, I personally have constantly. This past year was the first year I didn't have to deworm my Icelandic use. Not bad, but it was the first one. Now, when it came to handling them, um, I have a sheep handling system with a turntable where they run into this turntable and they yeah. put the gate on them, but their horns are wider, right? If, if I For them to get into the turntable, it causes their bodies to go completely through. So what do you do for body handling and holding them still for checking them and hoof trimming or catching them for shearing or anything? Is there, is there a trick to this? (laughs) So um, when I was very pregnant with my second daughter, my husband helped me trim hooves once and it's only been once. And so his solution to never have to help me trim hooves again was to buy me a, a tip shoot, like you you described, yeah. you know, squeeze and then turn. Yeah. Um, and our little one is almost five now, and I've never used it. 
it's been sitting in the barn and I've never used it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Unless you can get them to back into it. I don't know how you're going to use it. Yeah. I mean, for me, I've never even set it up. Uh, the reason why is because it probably takes as much work to get one of them in there than it does to just flip them over and trim their dang hooves. So my husband helps me do the rams because I can't handle the big, my big mature rams by myself. They're just too strong. So he does help me do them. Um, but the use I can tip myself and, um, I just, you know, tip them like the shearer does. You like it's sheer tips the I've sheep. Seen and, it down. I haven't mastered and, it. So I'm going to nod and say, oh yeah. Like that. <laughs> and in the back of my mind, I'm going, thank goodness for my, the thing that my kids call my, uh, my, my uh, sheep squeezer spinner thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But those are the pulled Katahdins. Those are not the, the horned Icelandics. When I have to catch them and trim their hooves, it's bucket of grain, baby. And uh, hold their legs real hard. Like from my, strangling mm. days and get in there and play farrier but they're, they're not they're not that bad they're not that bad because they're very trained sheep they're former show sheep so i have i have very atypical icelandic use i think yeah well there's certain <laughs> use every year despite not me not intentionally handling and taming my sheep as some people do right mm-hmm. especially if they have show sheep um, that are just friendly, like love my kids come up, they wag their little tails and they come to get scratches. And there's always a few you and use and, and ram lambs a year that are just naturally more inclined to come be friendly. So if, what kind of equipment do you have that you couldn't live without? Okay. You don't need a shoot. You don't need a, well, maybe you do need a shoot. You don't need a turntable, I should say. So what, what is your equipment that you use to handle all of these sheep? Um, Hog panels is probably right. like my most versatile piece of equipment because mm-hmm. you can make a little pen, you can make, you can squeeze them, you can drag them behind the truck to the pasture, right? Like mm-hmm. they're, they're definitely the most versatile thing that I have is just some hog panels. Um, and then, you know, a really substantial solar battery charging fence charger system mm-hmm. um because it's got to be hot otherwise sheep are going to get in it they're going to die dogs are going to get under there you know neighbor dogs uh coyotes wolves right so hot fence mm-hmm. and like it's always been me and my truck <laughs> i've had my truck uh yeah i mean i my truck is now retired a retired farm truck but i've had that truck for like 16 years it was the only vehicle i've ever bought new and it's like everything, like just, yeah, it goes over the pasture, drag the things. We like, we put the sheep in the front seat. Like if I'm moving one lamb or something for a buyer, it goes in the, in the cab, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, so what about minerals and supplements? What does your routine look like? So Icelandics are pretty unique in their mineral needs. They evolved on volcanic soil in Iceland. So it's very mineral rich and you'll hear people kind of compare more to goats in terms of their mineral needs, which I can agree with. There's some discussion around copper needs, which I don't necessarily agree with some of that discussion in terms of Icelandic sheep need copper. Uh, I think they tolerate more copper because copper 
kill sheep, like domestic sheep, you give them copper, they die um, from toxicity. So uh, for me, um, they get the baking soda, the sodium bicarb, free choice. Um, that, that regulates their rumen so they don't bloat and die, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, they get salt. I kind of rotate around what loose, they only get loose salt, what loose salt I give them. Um, sometimes I give them a mineralized salt. Sometimes I give them a selenium salt. Uh, I kind of just change it up, not with any regularity, just kind of when I feel like it. But usually it's like Redmond mineralized loose salt. Mm-hmm. And then um, just a regular sheep mineral. Mm-hmm. And I amend the sheep mineral. So I used to add amending, add other minerals to the sheep mineral. Um Based on liver analysis, you can do a micro and macro nutrient of a healthy sheep liver to see if there's deficiency. And so I used to get a custom blend from a Midwestern company called High View Feeds, H-Y View, and they, they'll just custom blend stuff for you. So selenium yeast is actually illegal in the state of Montana. And this is one of like the biggest things that Icelandic sheep need to not have like some major complications with their health. Um, Selenium deficiency is very common. Montana, most of the soil here is selenium deficient, so they don't get it from forage. And so we have to supplement it. And the, the selenium in the form of salt isn't as bioavailable as selenium yeast, but selenium yeast is illegal because of some mishap back in the day where some like wild migrating geese ate a bunch of selenium yeast that because farmers used to amend their soil with it and they died. <laughs> so we're not allowed to have it here, but we, I can ship it in from high view in this amendment that I used to get from them. I don't do anything as complicated now. I've gotten my selenium supplementation down from the gel, the paste. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically anytime I have my hands on my flock, they mm-hmm. get gel. And this is like five, six, seven times a year. Okay. They all, they all get the gel and that's taken care of it. The amendment that I make to their mineral now is from, um, premier one. They have a couple amendments that you can put into the mineral. They, they say put it into the salt, but I actually put it in their sheet mineral and it's the selenium iodine sometimes vitamin E, depending on the year. So I think a lot of shepherds don't know this, but when you're throwing hay, when you're feeding hay and there's no access to green, fresh grass, that they're not getting their vitamin E needs met. So vitamin E, um, I think the word is oxidizes very quickly. So it's shelf life, if you will, in cut hay is about 30 days and then it's gone. There's no more vitamin E. So um, vitamin E is expensive to supplement. So I'll either do it in the amendment that I get from Premier One. They have it in like the iodine kind of amendment Um, or more commonly, I actually buy it by the gallon in a jug from Premier and it's a dilution for their water. So people will always ask me when I post pictures of the sheep, like what's in their water in the winter? It's all cloudy. It's because I put vitamin E in their water so that they get their vitamin E needs met. Cause we throw hay for seven, eight months of the year. I mean, it's like our winters are long. Yeah, I was going to ask you how many months a year there are you on hay? So seven or eight, my goodness. 
Yeah. Last year, because of the drought, we started throwing hay in September and then we finished lambing in May. So they were out on pasture June, July, August. So it was like three months of pasture time for them um, that particular year. But um, usually we can keep them on pasture like through October. So even with all of those hay requirements for, hay that many out of the year, you're still, they're still paying their own bills. That's, that's impressive. Well, remember rule number one is have a good hay guy, <laughs> right? Very true. That's right. Go back to rule number one. Oh my goodness. So have you ever had to give like BOCI shots, which is the, um, the injectable selenium, but it's, it's a prescription. So I have BOCI on hand. I give BOCI shots to use that did not lamb the prior year for no reason that I can conceive of. So if they didn't conceive okay. in a year before the next breeding season, I do give them BOCI. Okay. Um, and before breeding season before breeding season. Okay. And then, uh, every single newborn lamb gets mm -hmm. injected here. Uh, yeah, I do the same thing. I do quarter CC for every newborn. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about RAM management, if you would. Um, what is your, what is your policy for RAMs? So when you put them in, do you take them out? Do you let them run? Some of them run year round. What, what is your, everyone's a little different. Yeah. So I think with larger flocks, it's more common to keep the RAMs out separated from the ewes unless they're actively breeding. Mm -hmm. um, I think because with a larger flock, you're looking at running three, five, eight, 10 rams, right? Having that many guys available. What do you mean by larger flock? What is that number where you're that's tipping over into that piece of advice? Um, well, for me, like, let's say I'm running 50 ewes. Okay. And because one of my revenue streams focus is on breeding stock. Uh -huh. I can't have them all bred to the same ram. I mean, theoretically yeah. a ram, an Icelandic ram can breed 50 ewes. And I did that in my first year. I had three rams on a hundred and something ewes. Okay. Um, but because I want diversified genetics for my buyers mostly yeah. is I, I have five rams and 50 ewes. Okay. So you could have just one ram. And in that case, you would probably just keep your ram in with your ewes all the time. Mm -hmm. But the, I think the older your rams get and the more rams you have, the more likely you are to keep them away, away from the ewes as much as possible when they're not breeding. And I find my Icelandic rams are temperamentally uh, pretty good until their third year. So their first year, they're fine as a lamb. I breed my ram lambs. I breed my ewe lambs also. Um, their second year, they're they're good. The th that that two and a half year kind of mark, most of them are good. But you're looking at like three and a half, they start to like really try to kill each other. I mean, they want to kill each other. Um, so my my rams go in for 32 days, which is two heat cycles for the ewes to ovulations and then they get squeezed or smashed or whatever that term is where you confine them so they can't basically they can't get a running start at ramming each other ram cram yeah yeah ram cram and um they're less likely to kill each other in that situation and when they're thoroughly exhausted from 
being ram crammed, you let them out and see what happens, which is always kind of a crapshoot, right? <laughs> when you're talking about adult rams. So mm. what is the worst ram related mishap you've ever had? They were so brutal this year that by far this year before breeding season, I, I put them in a little bit later than usual. I put them in like around Christmas instead of around a Thanksgiving because we lamb here usually in May, but now we're looking at like a May to June lambing season this year. They just really tried to kill each other. I mean, they were more brutal than all seven years combined ram shenanigans. And my big hunky ram, who's been my favorite ram, he was, uh, I think I've used him six. This is now probably his seventh year as a breeding ram for me. Um, My dominant ram, who's not him, uh, must have pushed him over. Legs up in the air. My husband is leaving in the morning to take my daughters to school. And he calls me and he said, there's, there's a Ram out there and he, all his legs are up in the air and he, my husband leaves, right. To take the girls to school. I'm like, okay, great. Thanks. And I go out there <laughs> and my favorite Ram is legs up. And usually that means they're dead, right? Like usually if you find a sheep like that, they're, they're just dead. And I, I look at him and his leg moves and I'm like, oh, he's not dead. And I pull my phone out and I film this entire thing of me trying to get, he's, he probably has 75 pounds on the next biggest Ram. And I have a few adult Rams. He's huge. He, and I'm trying to flip him over and film this and like get him up, but he's just so heavy. And I finally get him up and he'd been that way for probably a while. He was exhausted. He's like panting. This is all on Instagram. Okay. I posted this. It went viral on on Facebook, it had like 180,000 views on Facebook, wow. this video. I have to go. And, look, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the comments, of course, like he has, he needs to be sheared. He fell over and couldn't get up because he had too much wool. Like, I'm like, really? But side note, uh, but he he's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was probably the scariest thing. Um, I don't take any crap for my Rams. So I was going to ask you, how do you go in there to, to write the one? Obviously you said that you don't have a, you know, a sheep dog, right? And yeah. So was- my dominant Ram, I bought him dominant, meaning he's the, the, the ruler of the roost in the Ram pen. You know, yeah. he bosses everyone else around yeah. and I bought him from a farm that friendlies their sheep they they like to scratch them and pet them and give them treats even their rams and that's kind of a no-no uh you don't want to do that with your rams if you're going to keep them more than a couple years so when I got him he was like a year old and he was fine but I don't let him anywhere near me so he like comes up for scratches and I like get away from me like we don't do this here right so that was a process and then I was super pregnant so he's getting into his maturity of being a jerk, like potentially being old enough to hurt people, to hurt other rams, getting hormonal. And I'm super pregnant. Like I am so pregnant that, um, I like, this is when my husband helped me trim the sheep hooves because I couldn't flip them. And he comes after me. He comes after me to, to show me that he is the dominant ram. And I can, and normally I would flip them, right? Like I would, try to pin him down. I try to get him on the ground. 
And so they know that if they come after me, they're going to be in a very uncomfortable situation, which is pinned to the ground. And so I was too pregnant to, to do anything. So I just sat on his horns and I'm sitting on him and his nose is in the dirt and he's just standing there like, what are you doing to me? And that was actually the only time he's ever come after me. So, um, yeah. But how did you get to sitting on him when they were animals running towards you? Like there's, there's a gap in time. There's some sort of like jujitsu happening in the middle. Yeah. There's jujitsu happening. What like is- usually, usually a foot, you know, <laughs> foot, foot near the face. Um, and a little like, you know, with the bull, with the red thing and you go Toro, like there's a little bit of that happening, you know, (laughs) but, um, for the most part, aside from this particular Ram, my Rams have all had really nice dispositions. And I think that's one of the most attractive characteristics of Icelandic sheep is that the Rams in general, there are some lines that are aggressive, but for the most part, I would say that they're like the most handleable, safer breed to be dealing with adult Rams. Oh my goodness. Um, do you have a mentor? Did you have anyone who helped you along the way? Um, Facebook, that Facebook okay. group. And the Laura Lawson book. Those the were Laura the Lawson book. Have you ever talked ones. to Laura? Did you ever say Laura? No, no, uh, but I, I've, I've earmarked and written all over that red lambing problem <laughs> book. I mean, I still think it is in my truck, my, my equipment. I can't live without it like lives in my truck. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, there's a breeder, uh, an Icelandic breeder, and she's been doing it her whole, her whole life. Uh, her dad started an Icelandic flock, uh, named Barb Gunnis. And she has Wolf Ridge Icelandics. And um, she's taught me so much about what good Icelandic wool is. And I think very few people ever get to experience what real quality Icelandic wool is. It's very, very rare. Um, And she just has like a really impeccable flock uh, and she's bred for meat and fleece. Okay. So meat and fleece, good horns, straight legs, uh, proper bite. That's one of her big things that nobody talks about. Nice Lanx is having the right bite because to have a good meat sheep, they need to be able to eat as much grass as possible. Right. So they need a good bite. Um, so she's taught me a ton about you know, a meat sheep and, uh, like loin width and like a good haunch and a big square shoulder and, um, and wool really, uh, wool quality. And yeah, I mean, that was, that was like my relationship with her is definitely the icing on the cake when it comes to like learning about the Icelandic sheep It's really just brought my standard of what a good sheep is for Icelandics and what a good wool, what a good fleece is to a level that I think few shepherds ever even get to witness in the United States, nice. uh, much less get their hands on in their own flock. Nice. Nice. Oh, real quick, back to supplements. I forgot to ask you. Some people say that cobalt is important. And then also um, you mentioned an iodine supplement, but they give that through dried kelp free choice. 
Yeah. So um, cobalt, if your liver basically comes back deficient, which mine actually did uh, back when I sent my first liver in, then yeah, yeah, uh, you can supplement cobalt. That's why I was getting that mix from Highview because they added cobalt and then the selenium yeast for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, uh, some people are going to need to supplement cobalt. And then um, iodine, I started supplementing iodine because of Barb Gunness. And it was, she had some problem one year and I can't specifically remember it was a lambing problem. Like a lot of her lambs or placentas or something, there was a presentation that was consistent Mm -hmm. and she attributed it to an iodine deficiency. So now it just is something I put in their mineral just to prevent. So where do you think you're going to be going with your flock over the next five, 10, 15 years? Do you have like a a bigger, longer term plan? Like do you see things going in a certain way? Do you have bigger goals? Um, so I've transitioned from a mostly unregistered flock to a mostly registered flock. So I'm going to continue to go on the registered um, flock route and really just focusing on the quality genetics that Barb Gunness has showed me and what that looks like, because there's a real... Um, American type of Icelandic sheep that is not the Icelandic type of Icelandic sheep. And Barb really breeds for the Icelandic type. And that is in the United States because we have fleece shows. Uh, People tend to breed for color and fleece and very little else. And so they'll have kind of an average meat type sheep with a great fleece, or they're going to have an average milk type sheep with a great fleece. Um, but they're not going to have a superior meat sheep with a great fleece or superior, um, let's say dairy sheep with a great fleece. They kind of just have average. So I think that the American breeding program for Icelandic sheep, because of the emphasis on color and fleeces, uh, colored fleeces, that it's really hurt the breed when you compare it to the sheep in Iceland, which are carcasses, right? Like they don't milk their sheep in Iceland. These are carcasses. They're for meat in Iceland. And they tend to actually have very nice fleeces there also. Um, So that's really hard for a lot of Icelandic breeders to hear. Hmm. And I've made not, I've made friends into not so great friends by being very selective on like, let's say I'm searching for a new breeding ram and I have these standards that these, these rams need to hit for me to bring them into my flock and they're not hitting those and, you know, be like having to decline a potential ram coming in from a well-known breeder and and they don't like hearing that. And then I don't hear from them again. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. What are your standards? Like, are you willing to share them? Yeah. Um, I think it's mostly the meat genetic that is lacking. So when the USA market talks about Icelandic sheep as a triple purpose breed, um, it's very untrue and it's very misleading in an individual sheep. Now, the breed as a whole, I would say that that is true. It's a triple purpose breed as a whole, but you're not going to find an individual sheep that is both good at meat and dairy. 
So you can take a look at the cattle industry for this example. A dairy cow, so Mabel the dairy cow, what are her characteristics? She got a big old udder. She got her hip bones sticking out, right? Where you look at a meat cow, they don't have bony bone protrusions. They, they don't have angularity. They're like round and wide and short and stout, right? And then here's Mabel, who's like tall and lanky and bony and angular, right? That's two different genetics, right? You can't make a dairy cow into a meat cow. You can't make a meat cow into a dairy cow. So I think that's kind of the pitfall in the American Icelandic sheep breeding program is that people say, yeah, they're triple purpose, but they're really not. You're, you can't have all three in the same individual. You can have greatness in two of those categories, but not, not three. Interesting. Interesting. So do you have any leader sheep? Um, <laughs> that's an interesting question. I avoid leadership. Okay. Um, I do not intentionally have any leadership. Uh, genetically, I do not have any leadership, but I have that one sheep. And anyone who has sheep knows this. You have that one sheep that is a pain in the butt. She <laughs> is just like, she's got to be a leadership. She is so naughty. She's like, so no, genetically, I do not have any leadership. I will never have any uh, leadership, but there is one sheep that uh, she's definitely the leader of naughty, naughty things in my flock. All right. Okay. So um, what are we going to see from you next? Do you have any um, projects in the works? You're writing a book, you're doing any new, um, new product lines? Yes. Uh, I'm you don't have to talk about it. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I haven't announced it yet. So okay. um, yeah, continuing with my my breeding flock, focusing on the meat and fleece genetic okay. and um, the registered the registered flock. And uh, in terms of product for me, I mean, really, it's all about, you know, in, let's see, two years ago, 2021, 90% of my revenue came from online sales. So from my e-commerce store okay. out, outside of breeding stock. Mm -hmm. So this is value added. This is wool, uh, sheepskin, skin fell. Last year, it was more like 75%. I think just coming out of COVID, you know, I was able to get to more in-person events um, and really starting to explore like the Renaissance fair mm -hmm. uh, scene. There aren't really, there aren't any Viking events here, unfortunately, like there is like elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but like really just taking a stand and going even deeper into my niche with the Viking era and really um, keeping those folk arts alive, like mm -hmm. the skin fell and null binding and tablet weaving, like things that sheep were needed for mm -hmm. uh, and, and educating people around that while also getting to dress up like a Viking and uh, hang out with weird people who like to dress up like Vikings too. That's like one of the best part. Sounds fun. Sounds fun. All right. So how can people follow you and support what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, Copia Cove, uh, anywhere, really. I mean, you put into Google, that's me, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I might be posting on YouTube this year. I don't know yet if people want to see more video content for me than uh, YouTube also, uh, but I'm, I'm very easy to find. Do you have a newsletter or something that people can sign up for on your website? 
Yeah, you can go to copiacove.com. And um, if you want to get emails from me, uh, you can sign up there. But there's also a great blog with resources on, you know, how to tan your own sheepskin and how to felt a fleece rug and uh, my lambing kit, like what is in my lambing kit and some other great kind of Icelandic sheepy sort of resources there for everybody. Sheepy sort of resources. I love that. All right. Well, that's fantastic. Um, okay. I'm going to say thank you very much. And I really appreciated talking to you. And um, I hope that everyone else really enjoyed hearing all about Copia Cove and your Icelandic sheep. Super great. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye.